Merry-Go-Round Storytelling presents Test Valley Tales with Amanda Kane-Smith. Hello, I'm Amanda. Welcome to the Test Valley Tales podcast. This podcast features the stories from my illustrated book called Test Valley Tales. Each week, I'll be telling a traditional story based in a real location in the beautiful borough of Test Valley, which, if you're not from round here, is in Hampshire, in England, in the UK. All the stories are different, but they are all magical in one way or another. So whether you're curious about strange-looking dragons or magical wish-giving fish, enchanted trees or even spooky ghost legends, I'm sure there'll be a tale here for everyone. And if you're listening locally, I hope you may want to go out and explore the place the story is set and maybe see if you can find some of the things I refer to there. I can't promise you'll meet any of the magical creatures, but if you do come across any, please say hello from me. Well, I think it's time to get on with this week's tale. So, make yourselves comfortable, and I will set the scene. This is a tale of love and magic, and it's called The White Trout of Stockbridge. There is magic flowing under the high street of Stockbridge in the guise of the chalk stream channels that drift secretly below the little town. These channels are part of the River Test and can be seen at certain points along the high street where the trout enjoy bathing in the sun. One of these channels becomes so wide that it forms its own river for a while, flowing across Stockbridge Common before it becomes part of the Test again further along. It is known as Marshcourt River. Stockbridge is famous for its rivers and the trout that live in them. Even its name comes from the wooden bridge that spanned the river Tess long ago. The bridge's legs were made of huge tree trunks known as stocks, which had been hammered into the gravelly bed of the river and connected with oak beams and planks laid on top of wooden arches. It was this bridge that made it possible to ferry people goods and livestock safely from one side of the river to the other. And it was across this bridge that a young woman walked each day as she took her small flock of sheep to graze on the common. The young woman's name was Isolde. Isolde was a gentle soul, with hair as white as the crowfoot flowers in the river and as wild as the wool on the sheep that she cared for. Everyone loved Isolde and were always pleased to see her. 
Her daily walk to the common to graze her small flock of sheep always took longer than it should have, because she made time to speak to all the people she met along the way. She did not mind taking her time. In fact, she liked to take her time as she walked. Her eyesight was not good, and she saw the world in a different way to others. Colours were muted, and lines round things became shady. It was only when things were close that she could see well. Her eyes were beautiful, though. Everyone said so. They were a pale violet framed with long white lashes. Isolde didn't know why her hair was so white and her skin so pale, but she was happy to look different, and at least it meant that everyone always remembered her name when they spoke to her. When Isolde arrived at the common, she would always let her sheep graze while she sat by the river, listening to the whirl of the dragonflies and the gentle tumbling of the water. Sometimes, on hot days, Isolde liked to dip her feet into the cool, clear river and splash them softly in circles, making little swirls and eddies. Occasionally, she lay on her stomach so she could look down into the sparkling waters of the Chalk River and, if no one was around, would gently push her face into the water and open her eyes to look at the magical world underneath. She loved how, when her face dipped in, the chill of the water would make her heart miss a beat, and she marvelled at the way the bubbles would escape from her mouth and nose and dance their way to the surface. The water was so clear it was like glass, and sometimes, if she kept very still, she could be lucky enough to see a little white-clawed crayfish peeking out through the water weeds its tiny black bead eyes staring back at her with its claws ready for battle. It was on one of these hot days that Isolde met her true love. Thinking she was alone, she had pushed her face into the water to gaze at the strange underwater world. But she had only been there for a few seconds when she was startled by a voice. "'Excuse me, my lady, but I wanted to make sure you were all right.' Isolde pulled her face from the water and turned round. Her face was soaked and, as she stared up at the stranger, the droplets came together to run into her eyes and drip from her chin. Isolde dried her eyes with her sleeve and stood up. And that was the first time she saw him. Him with the brown hair and freckled skin and kind smile. And his name was Benan. Isolde and Benin became great friends. Benin would come and graze his horse on the common and they soon found they enjoyed spending all their time together. They both enjoyed nature and the outdoors and, most importantly, they made each other laugh. Time passed and Isolde and Benin fell in love and decided to get married. The day before their wedding, they arranged to meet on the common for a walk. It was summer again and the grasses by the river were long. Isolde and Benin found a high bank where they sat among the long grasses and talked as they dangled their feet into the water. They were so sheltered in their spot by the river and so lost in talk that they didn't notice two poachers arrive on horseback on the other side of the common nor did they notice the deer that had leapt out of the wood in front of the poachers, 
The deer darted this way and that as it made its way across the common, desperately trying to evade its fate. Then, seeing the river ahead, it raced towards it to escape into the woodland on the other side. The deer was sprinting towards Isolde and Benin, who were hidden from view as one of the poachers stopped to draw his bow. The deer jumped into the air, its powerful legs launching it high over the heads of Isolde and Benin and into the river in front of them as the poacher let his arrow fly. As the deer's front legs hit the water, Benin stood up to see what the commotion was all about and, as he did, the poacher's arrow shot straight through Benin's heart, pushing him backwards into the water where he disappeared under the reeds and the white flowers of the water crowfoot. Seeing what they had done, the cowardly poachers fled. Isolde was left alone and... In despair, she jumped into the water, but Benin was gone, lost to the river, never to be seen again. Poor Isolde was heartbroken. Nothing anyone could say could ease her pain. Every day, like before, she would take her sheep to graze on the common, but now, rather than stopping to talk with the people she passed along the way, she would just walk, head bowed towards the ground. She would sit at the spot where Benin had been killed and, although her mind was busy with thoughts of despair and loneliness, her body would be still. So still, in fact, that she looked like a statue gazing out at the water, waiting for her love to come back. But he never did. Then one day, Isolde disappeared. A short time later, the people of Stockbridge noticed a white trout in the river on the common. This was a curious thing, as no one had ever seen a white trout before. There had always been trout in the rivers, that was for certain, but they were always brown. Stories began to spread that the white trout was in fact magical, and because people thought it might be magic, no one ever wanted to catch it, for fear of what may happen to them. Generations passed and the white trout remained, swimming in the river by the common. Then one day, a regiment of soldiers arrived in Stockbridge. They had been involved with the rout of Winchester, which had finally ended with the capture of Richard of Gloucester by the bridge. Battle-weary and tired of fighting, they were grateful to make camp for the night on the common. One of the soldiers a mercenary who'd seen the worst of the fighting, took a spot by the river. On hearing the tales of the magical white trout, he laughed at the locals and their superstitions. Magic didn't exist, he boasted. How could it when such terrible things happened on the battlefield? And he would prove it by catching the fish for his supper, which he did. The soldier showed it off, smug to be proved right that it was just a fish after all. He found some dried peat and began to make a fire. Rations had been scarce and he was hungry after all the fighting. He put the white trout in a large frying pan and put the pan on the fire. The trout lay still and, although the pan felt hot, the trout remained as white as the flowers in the river. This is strange, he thought. 
Maybe this type of trout does not go brown when it cooks. He turned the trout over. He waited, then turned it again. It must be cooked by now, he thought. So he took it out of the pan and put it on a plate. He got his knife and cut into its side. As he did, there was a scream. The trout jumped from the plate, and just as it hit the ground, it vanished, and in its place, standing in front of him, was a beautiful young woman with white hair. She was holding the top of her arm, which was bleeding. "'Why did you take me out of the water, you villain?' she cried. "'Put me back at once. I must wait for my lost love to return.' She looked into his eyes. They were full of anger and fear, then as she looked closer she saw something else, something she recognised in herself. It was grief. Feeling his sorrow, she walked towards him and slowly reached out to put her hand on his. You have felt loss as well, haven't you? she said. It was true. He had lost so many of his friends in battle, he was tired of fighting tired of becoming close to people only for them to be taken away from him. He looked at her. It had been such a long time since someone had spoken to him in such a gentle way that he now realised all his anger towards others was just because he felt so sad within himself. The soldier began to cry. It felt good to cry. It was as if her touch had given him permission to grieve for his friends. He looked at his older. Thank you, he said. Before he could say another word, Isolde smiled and transformed back into the white trout. There is magic in the world after all, the soldier thought. He gently picked her up and carried her to the river, releasing her into the water where he had caught her from. As she slipped out of his hands, the clear, sparkling water stained red for a moment. Then she disappeared. And since that day, rainbow trout have been found in the river, all with a red mark along the side of their body where Isolde was cut with the knife. The soldier felt different after that meeting. He no longer felt alone. He changed his careless ways and learnt to respect other people and their beliefs. And as for his older, well, if you go down to the river in Stockbridge today and look at the trout swimming, you may be lucky enough to see one that is white. And if you do, that will be his older, waiting for Benin, her lost love. you enjoyed that story. This is one of the Test Valley tales that has its origins elsewhere, and earlier versions can be traced all the way back to Ireland. 
I haven't been lucky enough to see a white trout in Stockbridge yet, but I always make a point to have a look when I wander along the high street and along the path by the river that leads to Stockbridge Common itself. I love how the river looks there in the summer, when the water crowfoot flowers were in bloom. They are so pretty. But can you guess what wildflower plant family they are part of? Is it A. The daisy family B. The buttercup family C. The lily family or D. The rose family It is in fact B. The buttercup family And if you look closely, you can see they do look just like buttercups, except water crowfoot or white. Learning about our beautiful chalk streams and rivers has been one of my favourite parts of Tess Valley Tales. I had no idea how rare they are and what valuable habitats they create, rich in biodiversity. They are even referred to as England's equivalent to the rainforest. I was therefore so excited to be able to interview Maggie Shelton from Watercress and Winterbournes and learn about how these beautiful habitats were created and how we can get involved and help protect them for the future. So Maggie, thank you for meeting me uh, today. Um, it's lovely, lovely, really lovely to meet you. So, yeah. the first thing I want to ask is, have you ever seen a white trout, possibly yeah. Isolde, swimming about in the river in Stockbridge? Um, I haven't seen her yet, no. but I keep looking um, <laughs> after hearing the story. And um, I do see lots of trout, but I see different coloured ones. So I see light brown, dark brown, and sort of like um, almost a blackish charcoal brown. Um, but I haven't seen a white one yet. And what about rainbow trout? Because they're not, um, they weren't originally here. I think they did get... Um, introduced at some point, is that right? But you do see rainbow trout nowadays. So I mostly would see rainbow trout in lakes and stocked areas where people can fish for them. Right. Um, where I work, I work on um, chalk streams where there are native brown trout. So I don't see so many rainbow trout in my job. Right. Um, and people who fish in chalk streams would be probably fly fishing for the brown trout that I right, see. I yeah. see. So, yeah, so can you tell us a little bit about your job? Watercress and Winterbournes is a big um, scheme. We've got lots of different partners. So it's Wildlife Trust and Wessex Rivers Trust are the right. leads. Um, and then we've got about 16 other partners. Um, and we are trying to encourage as many people as possible to learn about chalk streams and through learning about them they become passionate and feel for them and want to do something to help them and then we've got lots of projects where they can actually get involved and do something for chalk streams to help them and help the wildlife um, and tell stories about chalk streams and talk about the history of them and the heritage and just enjoy being in them because they're lovely places to be. Well I, I have to admit before I started researching for this for the project for Tess Valley Tales yeah. I knew very little about the chalk streams obviously living in Hampshire living in the Tess yeah. Valley it's it's you're very aware of the beautiful yeah. rivers but you kind of take them for granted a bit yeah um, and I really had no idea that well one how rare they are the fact that there's only 200 yeah. in the world and yeah. the fact that most of them are here in yeah. England and that they're really um somewhere that we really really need to preserve um 
the thing that I was really fascinated about was how they're created. Would you be able yeah, to sure. explain a little bit yeah, about yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. When you talk about how um, chalk was formed, you need to think about the geology, ancient geology. So uh, about 100 million years ago in the Cretaceous period, which means period of chalk, Creto means chalk, um, the sea was about 200 metres deeper than it is now. It was very, very warm. We didn't have polar ice caps and the land wasn't the continents that we know now. And the seas were full of these little algae, um, like phytoplankton, that had tiny little shells in them. And when these um, algae died, all these little shells fell down and formed this soupy, chalky sludge at the bottom of the ocean. And over a long, long period of time, this um, sludge then turned into kind of like a, a white mud, and then that over long, long periods of time became chalk. And the reason it's so white is because there are only these two landforms. There wasn't lots of mud and stuff washing into the ocean. So it's really pure, tiny fossil remains wow. that have been laid over millions of years. Incredible. And because the, they've got little gaps in them, because they're lots of little tiny microscopic shells, you get tiny porous holes in the chalk rock, and that allows water to seep into chalk, which is a really important feature for our chalk streams and our landscape. Yes, I, I was told that if you imagine them like big sponges, yeah, yeah. Um, and the tiny little holes in the sponges, yeah. that's what the, the, the water, how it filters yes, through. Yes, exactly. So when, when it rains on, on chalk, yeah. the chalk can actually soak into, uh, sorry, the rain can soak into the chalk like that giant sponge you're talking about it's a big sort of rock hard sponge um, and if you get a little bit of dry chalk and you put it in water you can see bubbles coming out and that's the air oh, coming right. out oh, yeah so you can do that yourself um, and then what happens is the water will go into the rock and um, it will find its way out again somewhere else and that will be in a stream or a spring and all the impurities will have been filtered out um, it keeps the water really cold because the rock is very cold and it's a nice steady flow. So this is important for the chalk streams because it's, it means you get clear, constant, cold, chalky water. So, yeah, it's important for the, for the health of the chalk stream. Yeah. And, and everything that's living in the chalk stream is used to those features and has evolved to, to live in those kind of, um, that environment, that habitat. So um, we've just come inside because it was a little bit noisy, so I hope um, you can hear us now. So <laughs> one of the um, creatures I found out about was the, the white-clawed crayfish. crayfish. Yeah. And I, I kind of did a little bit about, um, about them in the story, but that's because they're endangered, aren't yes, they? And, yes, they really um, are. I thought that's something that people should know about, how, yeah. how, how we can protect them, or can we protect them? Is there um, anything yes, we can do? Yes, you can do things. So um, if, you, if you have them in your stream, number one, find out as much as you can about them because they're amazing and very rare creatures. You can also do a lot to um, make their habitat better by in make, finding out what they like. They like lots of large gravels and large stones to hide under. They like tree roots and things to um, hide in. So maybe don't make your stream really tidy. Leave it a little bit wild. And one of the biggest things is if you go in and out of the river, mm -hmm. make sure your 
clothes and your boots and your wellies and everything that has been wet is really scrubbed clean of any mud um, and then allowed to be dried because um, our native crayfish, if they get what's called crayfish plague from the non-native crayfish that we have, they die from it. So they're, most of them are dying because of this plague. So and if, you, if your clothes are washed and dried, yeah. you can't transmit that from one river to another. So if you travel around a lot or you like going in and doing stream dipping, just make sure everything's really cleaned well um, and, and dried out properly. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's it's, actually really it's useful really simple, to know. It's but, yeah. Yeah, really easy yeah. to do if yeah. you know that you should yeah. be doing that. And you don't need to use special soaps and things. Just make sure it's cleaned. Um, in maybe hot soapy water but it's the main thing is it's dried and there's no mud because mud stays damp and can right. keep the, you know spreading this plague oh. and if you want to see them yes where need, can you, you see need them? to be you need to be out at night because they come out at night because right. they don't want to be caught by birds and otters and things um, and so if you happen to be by a stream at night and it's safe to do so and you've got a torch, you can just shine into the stream and you might see them scurrying around. Oh. So that's, you won't really see them in day, daytime so much. What, what other um, <coughs> curious things do you find then? Oh. That, that sort of, what's your favourite favorite curious, oh, uh, favourite creature that you might find in a, in so a chalk I, stream? I really love seeing kingfishers and that's because... Um, if you if you want to see them, learn the sound of them because they make a specific they make a call before they fly by, and you can start to look at where you think they might fly. So you can see them more often than you think. And usually, when I'm out with people, with volunteers or anyone, and we hear one, they're so excited to see that little flash of bluish rust colour go yeah. past. But I also really like things like um, you can get. We have freshwater limpets. And little tiny pea mussels. And pea I just, mussels? Yes. <laughs> they look like little peas. And I just think, I was used to think you only got them in the sea, but yeah. you get them in streams as well. So, um, yeah, I like sort of unusual things like that. Um, so do you do, as um, Watercress and Winterbournes, do you do um, events where people can come yeah. and look at the pond, with, yeah. um, look at the river with you? You can yeah. show them and do pond... Um, yeah, stream dipping. stream dipping. Yeah, I would call it stream dipping. You can call it pond dipping or, yeah, we do. Um, so um, we go out with, um, we do events where we go along to a stream and take some nets and things and people can go out and have a go. If they can get in safely, we'll let families get in and have a go at stream dipping. Um, and then we look at the stuff that we've caught in trays and just chat to people about chalk streams and why they're awesome places and yeah. what we can do for them. Um, and then we've also sometimes go into schools or to like brownies and cups and that sort of thing and do the similar thing with them. Um, so yeah, if you're interested, you just keep an eye out on on uh, the website, probably Hampshire on our Isle of Wight Wildlife Trust's website. We've got a good link and you can find out what's going on in your area or get in touch with us. Yeah, yeah really, really good fun. One of the things that... <coughs> Well, it's your name, actually, Watercress and Winterbournes. <laughs> yeah. Now, I love this idea of Winterbournes and the yeah. fact that they're not there all the time. And no. the name Winterbourne, to me, is a really magical name, like yeah. something born in the winter. But that's Winterbournes are just rivers that aren't there all the time. Yeah, yeah. They're natural. It's a natural phenomenon. And not, not many people 
know about them or um, you know lots of people don't see them very often so um, these are places where when the rain has fallen in in the chalk that we were talking about this giant sponge um, the river the stream can start upstream from where you would normally expect it to start flowing mm. so it'd be sort of higher up a hill or higher up in a field and these are ancient um, stream beds and they only flow if there's been enough water um, raining in the winter time so they're born usually um, springtime or late winter they are called winterborn so it could be sort of I don't know December January February mm. March um, and then they'll flow for a few months and they will flow really fast and it, the water will be deep and rushing past. Yeah, because sometimes as you're walking along in the summer you see these um, gullies which, yeah. which are just covered in grass but they yeah. look like they could be a, an old riverbed or yes, something. Yes, that would so be a winter Could, could that yeah, be winterborn? absolutely. So when, they, when they're flowing in the winter, when, they, when the level of water in that chalk has sort of dropped down, those, the winterboards dry up. And that's right. natural. And then, as you're saying, in the summer, plants and things will grow in them. Or they might just stay looking a bit dusty and dry, and maybe people don't think they're very interesting. But there's things that are living, living in there that are evolved and have adapted to having a drying out phase. Right. So they, they are really important places, and lots of things like frogs like them. <laughs> so you get yeah, lots of imagine. different animals living in there, yeah, really important places. That's yeah. brilliant, because you watch things on television... <clears throat> I, I don't know, in faraway places where you have animals and creatures living in these dried places or plants and things, yeah. and they, they come back to life when the, the rains mm. come. But we've actually got that here yeah, yeah, in Tess Valley. Yeah, and yeah. I, you know, I don't think I was aware yeah. of that either. Yeah, it's just yeah. brilliant, all these different yeah. things that we can find out about. Yeah. Some of them only flow every sort of five or ten years in an extreme high water Right. Yeah, when the water's really high. And does does our use of water have impact on that, or is that just um, naturally the way they are? So they do naturally um, have this wet and dry phase, we call it. That is natural. Right. But it, it's undoubtable that um, it, because of our water use, there's probably less in the general aquifer that rock rocky sponge so um there is less water in our streams than there probably would have been mm. 100 200 years ago um, and with climate change things will change even more so so what we're trying to do um in some of our projects is to make those streams resilient to drying out so we right. might bring the sides in together so that the water's flowing in a a narrower channel but it's deep and moving as quickly as it should do or we're planting native plants in there getting people to think about their water use that sort of thing so um yeah we're we try and do lots of, we're trying to do everything to make our streams really healthy places yeah. for wildlife yeah and actually really good fun as a family Absol- to come down yeah. and get involved yeah but yeah. children just love well everybody just loves yeah getting a bit mucky and, yeah and yeah finding yeah yeah strange and curious yeah. and weird and wonderful yeah. things in in the water so no, if people yeah. want to contact you how would they go about that the easiest thing is to look up hampshire and isle of white wildlife trust watercress and winterborns yeah and that would take you to the main page you can click click on that and it'll open up a link to 
um, everything that we're doing, all the different projects. Um, you can kind of click on the pictures and things, and it'll take you to different things. And if you're really interested, you can sign up to a newsletter. You can opt out of that at any time, and that'll give you a monthly account of everything that we're doing, all the sort of fun pictures, all the stuff we're doing with volunteers. Right. Um, and yeah, it's all on that website. So lots of this stuff is free to for people to get yeah, involved with. Yes. Yeah. We've got loads of different projects from looking at and joining in with surveys to taking part in sort of arts and crafty type events right. to literary things um, it, we've just got about 20 different projects so I'm sure there's something for everybody in there. Yeah. really exciting <laughs> okay so Maggie I think we should go back outside now we've sheltered from the um, from the wind a little bit yeah. and shall we see if we can wander up um, to yeah. Stockbridge maybe see if we can wander oh, yeah. up the high street yeah and have a little look and see if we can see any white trout. Yeah, we might see one if we we're really lucky. And yeah. if, if we do, maybe that's his older uh, yeah. looking for her lost love. Yeah, oh. let's go and look. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. for talking to me. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the tale and the facts behind it as much as I enjoyed discovering them and writing the story. Thank you for listening. Test Valley Tales is an Arts Council-funded project and part of Test Valley Arts Foundation Borough of Culture Legacy Projects. You can find all sorts of project resources on my website at www.merry-go-roundstorytelling.co.uk forward slash Test Valley Tales. There is a downloadable map with postcodes to find all the story locations, links to walks and craft activities. You can also buy the Tess Valley Tales illustrated book of short stories there. Tess Valley Tales is on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter as at Test Valley Tales. And this podcast can be found on Podbean at podbean.com forward slash Test Valley Tales. If you are interested in finding out about other types of storytelling I get up to, or you would like to book me for an event, you can email me at mgrstorytelling at gmail.com. I am on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter as at mgrstorytelling and Merry Go Round Storytelling on YouTube. I also have another storytelling podcast which can be found at podbean.com forward slash funny tales and fairy tales and all this information can be found on my website which is www.merry-go-roundstorytelling.co.uk happy storytelling and i look forward to telling you another tale soon